Hi there, and welcome to the Cold Dive. I'm Lucas, aka Chrono Kirby, and this is the place for musings on technology, cryptography, and whatever else is on my mind today. So, today I'd like to talk a bit about the Fiat Shamir Transform, because I've been sort of doing some yak shaving related to that. So I've needed it for a little project of mine, and instead of doing it in the standard way that I've done for previous projects, since it's a common thing, I instead sort of rethought almost from first principles, like what what are good ways of handling it in programming. Uh, I guess that exposition was perhaps <laughs> a bit uh, uh, obtuse if you did, don't know what the Fiat transform is, so I guess I'll try to explain that now. So the, the starting point is that in cryptography, especially in the realm of zero-knowledge proofs, um, one useful notion is that of an interactive protocol. So often when people introduce zero-knowledge proofs, uh, they'll describe it as a sort of uh, interaction between a prover trying to convince a verifier, it's another party, about some statement. So they'd like to, you know, prove that they know, uh, you know, an image of a cat without revealing what the image looks like completely. And so they, the prover interacts with the verifier by exchanging messages. You know, the prover sends some messages, the verifier sends some messages back, etc. Um, but often, when people talk about zero-knowledge proofs, they talk about sort of this non-interactive object. So it's kind of like a signature. I create a proof in advance as the prover, and then that's a static object that anybody else uh, can verify if they know what, what's being proven. And in essence, the Fiat Shamir transform is a way to convert an interactive protocol, or at least certain interactive protocols, into a non-interactive system. And I say certain interactive protocols because there are limitations uh, to the protocols you can handle. So if you look at an interactive protocol in general, you have two parties, the, the prover and the verifier, they interact by exchanging messages and then doing computation locally. And in particular, there are no restrictions on the verifier other than you sort of assume that they, they're efficient. They run in polynomial time. They're not gonna you know, run forever. But there's sort of no restriction on what kind of state the verifier can maintain or what kind of computation they can do. And this, and this makes it tricky to implement uh, things in a non-interactive way. Because if the verifier has some sort of private bookkeeping, uh, then fundamentally you can't sort of make this non-interactive because the prover shouldn't you know, know what kind of bookkeeping the verifier is doing. So if the prover were to sort of try and do this interaction in advance, uh, they wouldn't be able to because well, I, they could play the, the role of the verifier, but that wouldn't convince anybody because sort of they've learned the, the state of the verifier that needs to say private. So often you consider a restriction 
called a public coin protocol in which all the verifier can do is respond with a random message uh, to the prover. So the prover sends messages to the verifier. The verifier just flips some bits at random, sends them to the prover, and then they continue like this a few times. And then at the very end of the protocol, the verifier runs a check based on all the messages they've seen so far and all the randomness they've sent. And this is a, what we call a public coin protocol because all the verifier does is just flip some coins which are revealed to the public or at least to the prover. And then there's a, just a static check which just runs based on everything seen so far. And the idea of making this non-interactive is that you, you can convert the randomness generated by a verifier with unpredictable deterministic sort of randomness. And so the way this is done is usually with, with a hash function. So the abstraction of the hash function that you use here is usually that of a random oracle. And the idea is you won't be able to predict the output of the hash function before you actually run it on a particular input. And so as the prover generates their messages, they can get the responses of the verifier in essence by sort of hashing sort of the transcript so far. Let's get to the details of that later. But by using a hash function, they can replace the verifier's you know, randomness with a sort of deterministic transform. And what's important is that anybody else can independently verify this because they can sort of recompute the hash function themselves and sort of compute the verifier's messages and then sort of rerun the protocol uh, themselves to verify the proof. So the fiat shimmer transform is essentially a way to turn any public coin protocol into a non-interactive one, which is quite, quite nice. And this is, you know, obviously useful in many situations because a non-interactive system is, is quite a bit more flexible. You can generate the proof in advance. The other person doesn't need to be online. And also many other people can sort of verify it independently, which is also a nice property that you might want to have. Now, I sort of glossed over exactly what you need to hash. And this is actually a bit of a, of a subtle point. So there's a very simple kind of protocol where the verifier just sends one message. So it's prover sends a message, verifier responds with a, a challenge, and then the prover responds with a, a response, and then you, you run the check on the first message of the prover uh, from which you can generate the challenge yourself using the hash function, and then the final message of the prover. So that's what the protocol would look like. Now, in this situation, it's, it's sort of clear because basically what you need to hash is the first message of the prover at the very least. So the prover sends a message, you hash that to get the challenge, and then you send the response. And so that's at a basic level all that needs to happen. Uh, one thing you also want to include in the hash at this point is any kind of context. So often it's if you have a statement that's being proven, it's good to hash that in too, because it sort of prevents bits of the proof being reusable in a different context. 
usually we're kind of paranoid about this, but it's it doesn't really hurt to put extra stuff in the hash function. Another neat thing you can do is well, you can you can also put additional context beyond just the statement. So let's say you're using this proof system in a particular you know uh, application, where you could put the name of the application in there too, so that a proof in one application can't be used for another application, which is quite nice. For example, if you look at like uh, one example of a, of a kind of fiat <laughs> uh, thing is a, is a signature. So Schnorr signatures are actually an instance of an interactive protocol for proving that you know the discrete logarithm of a point uh, on a group into uh, a signature scheme, in essence, by rendering sort of non-interactive using the fiat transform. And so if you have a signature like this, uh, if I, I wouldn't want you know, one person to be, be able to use signatures from one application in a different application, because then I might be able to sort of import, personate them. Like I can convince uh, someone that that person sent a message on one platform, even though they send it on a different one. So having extra context, which binds it to a particular application is good too. Another thing you can do even further is you, you can bind it to a particular like part of an application. So let's say like you you have this protocol, which you run every day, as part of your application, we could also include, you know, what day it is, or even uh, sort of a best practice when using Datumir transforms as like to create non-interactive proofs as like part of a sort of an MPC protocol, something like that. Is that on each run of the protocol, you generate a sort of a random identifier, and you use that um, as your you use that in your Fiatramir transforms to bind the proofs to that specific execution too, which is quite nice. And then another thing I'll talk about later, but you can sort of also bind proofs to sort of like all the, the proofs that you've done so far in a protocol, which is very interesting. But where was I? That was a bit of a digression, so let's let's get back to the main point. Oh, I guess another thing you can do, <laughs> there are a lot of things you can do by adding extra stuff that hash function, but one that, that I've sort of mentioned is that you can do signatures by bonding the proof to a message. Uh, so if I have a one-way function and I prove that I know the pre-image of that function, if I bind a message into the, the fiat Schreier transform, that, that, that can be used to make a sort of signature scheme because creating a proof is hard unless I know some secret. Uh, and by binding it to a message, I'm sort of saying, well, you know, I prove that I, I can do this hard thing, so it must be me. And also, you know, this is done for this specific message. So it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the message is challenging you to sign it or something. And that's for just the case where you have a single challenge. So in that case, it's quite simple because all you have to hash is the prover's message and then any additional, you know, contextual information or stuff that you want to bind to in the proof. Uh, where it gets more complicated is when you have more rounds. So first of all, one issue is that in the interactive case, more rounds sort of uh, have multiplicative soundness. So let's say I can cheat a little bit in each interaction, but we do many interactions, you know, one after the other. In the interactive case, uh, basically, like, I have to cheat every single one, you know, in sequence. So if I can get lucky, you know, maybe a single time, if I have many things in sequence, I can't get lucky many times. So that's sort of an issue. Whereas, one interesting thing you can do in the non-interactive case is that 
let's say each round is like completely independent, you know. For example, let's make this very concrete. Let's say that I send I send a bit. I send I send a, a message to the prover, any arbitrary bit string, or to the verifier rather, and they respond with a random bit. And basically I win win that interaction if the first bit of my message is the bit they respond with. Uh, so if you think about this sort of naively, in the interactive case, you have like a 50% chance of passing this EDH iteration. So if you were to do this 128 times, the probability of, of getting through all of these gates is to the minus 128. So 128 bits of security. So that's, that's, that's good. You can't, you essentially at that, at that low of a probability, we'd say, okay, this is secure. You can't beat this. We'll take that as good enough. Uh, here's the problem if you make this non-interactive. What I can do is, to recall the situation, I send a message, I get the challenge, and then I win if the challenge is the, the challenge bit is the same as the first bit of my message. And my message can be arbitrarily long. So what I can do is that if I send a message, I can see the challenge by calculating the hash of that message. And then I get a bit. And so what's interesting is that for each message, there's basically a random bit that, that's assigned to it, but it's the same bit. So what I can do is I can just try out a bunch of messages. So I, maybe I say, okay, I'm gonna have a message whose first bit is zero, and then I add a bunch of random stuff, and I see what the hash is. Okay, if it's one, well, I just tweak the random stuff, and I'm probably gonna get a different hash, or maybe it, you know, it hashes to zero again, or to one again. Maybe I, I do this a few times, I hash to one, but eventually, and really pretty quickly, if the output of the hash is random, it's, it's going to agree it's going to hash to zero just by adding this random noise. So what in the interactive case, I can't sort of retry around. That's sort of the issue. Like once it, once we've started the protocol, we sort of have to go through with it. So if at any point I lose, that's, you know, I can't change what message I would have had. Whereas in the non-interactive case, basically I can sort of reset, I can reset the, the verifier if I don't like their challenge, I can say, oh, I, I can't answer that challenge. So let me, let me reset this step and hope to get a better challenge. So you sort of have to analyze the soundness of the protocol round by round in essence. And also sometimes it's even possible to sort of like go back multiple steps <laughs> if necessary. Although in public coin protocols, that's not super useful. One way of modeling this, which I talked about in my, my last podcast episode is uh, with time travel. So one way to look at this is is actually you have to consider the security of the protocol even if the adversary has a has a time machine where they can go backwards in time <laughs> and and rerun the protocol that way. So that's an interesting way to look at it. So the usual way people get around this is they, they just make each sort of interaction have a very large challenge space so that each individual interaction is hard to pass. But then this sort of begs the question. So back to our fiat Shamir transform stuff. Uh, if you have this multi-round protocol, what do you include in the hash at each step? So for the first interaction, it's it's clear it's you know it's as if you had a single round protocol. You hash the first message, and then you hash whatever additional context and what inf information you want to bind to. But what do you do for the second round? So it would be bad if you just hashed the second message and the context, because then you're sort of, you can sort of reorganize different rounds together. 
That's sort of an issue. Like you sort of want, you don't want to be able to slide up interactions with each other. So you want to also sort of hash enough information so that you're committed to what happened previously in the protocol so far. So one way to do this is you just hash at every step, you hash all of the messages, including the challenges generated so far, and you know additional context and binding. So that's one approach. Um, that 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 works perfectly fine. The problem is that like you have to like hash extra information redundantly. So another approach is that at each step, in addition to the challenge, you also generate sort of a, a chaining key, which is a little, like you know two hundred fifty six bits, you know large enough to not have any collisions at your desired level of security. And you also hash at each round the previous chaining key, as well as, you know, the message for that round. And one neat thing you can do is at the beginning of the protocol, you can set the chaining key to, to be the hash of the context and binding information, or like a message, stuff like that, and the statement too. So then each round is just, I hash the chain key and the message the provers just sent me, uh, and I get a new chain key, and then uh, whatever challenge I need for that round. So that's one way of doing it, which is, which is neat. I, I, I kind of like that approach. That's probably the, the conceptually the simplest. Another thing you could add is like the round number specifically uh, that can help too. But yeah, so in essence, you, you, you want to do something that's equivalent to hashing all the messages that have been seen so far. Uh, anything that's equivalent to that will be, will be good enough. And so I guess this brings me you know, pretty straight into the second kind of topic I want to talk about related to the attribute transformer, which is, you know, what are good programming models uh, to use this? So one one thing that sort of naturally, that you naturally might want to do is like have this kind of stateful, you know, object. Because if you think of like the chain key approach, you start with this chain key, and then you sort of feed in some messages, get some output, new chain key. So you could sort of encapsulate this updating the chain key thing with sort of like an object. So I feed it in some messages, it absorbs it in them, and then at some point I say, okay, I want the challenge. It you know forks itself to get the chain key, modifies itself so the new chain key's there, and it gives me like my challenge. But that's 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 uh, I think a really promising, probably the, the simplest approach to use. Um, and I think, and one advantage of sort of doing this stateful object thingy is that it's e sort of easy to chain things together because as I mentioned before, like one way to initiate the protocol is that you sort of hash your context and whatever things to create a chain key and then you initialize the object that way. So then your protocol could just take in sort of the stateful object and operate on that. I guess at this point, it's probably most useful to talk about concrete software because I don't think uh, I don't think the abstract approach is going to be too enlightening. So one one system uh, I liked I took inspiration of in particular. I guess for, let's rewind a bit. So recently I've worked on on two little yak shaves called uh, Meow, which is an implementation of Strobe, which is a sort of a an abstraction of, of sponge functions is a symmetric primitive uh, and another thing called magic kitten and uh, and magic kitten was inspired by uh, another library in rust called Merlin which is 
a library which abstracts over the fiat Shamir transform. And uh, the idea of both of these libraries is that you represent your interaction with the FS transform via the stateful transcript object. So you can feed the transcript messages, you feed it messages, you feed it messages, and then at any point you can generate a challenge, which also modifies the state of the transcript. So I say, okay, give me, you know, n challenge bits. Uh, and then what's neat with the transcript approach is that it's easy to compose protocols together. So one thing you can do, as I mentioned, you initialize the transcript with, you know, maybe a message, some context, the statement to be proven, etc. But then let's say I'm, I'm, I'm composing multiple proofs in sequence. Well, what I can do is I can, I can initialize my transcript to start. I pass it to the first proof system, and then I pass the stateful object that's been modified by the first one to the second one, and sort of have this. And this is sort of neat because now you know the proving of the second system is bound to whatever happened in the first system. So that's that's a nice property. And and then the way you'd write. Uh, you'd write sort of proof systems and here is that a proof system would just accept a transcript as an argument. And this would allow your proof system to, to be used for in, in any context, because you, as the person creating the transcript and then calling the system, you could sort of bind your transcript to whatever information you want. And you could also use uh, the system in the context of an arbitrary protocol. So maybe I'm using like a, discrete logarithm proofs in the context of a threshold signature scheme. And so I'm doing multiple of them in sequence. And so I can reuse, so I can use the same code that I would use, for example, for signatures, uh, because I just pass in a different transcript. So that's, that's very nice. Uh, another sort of key thing is that it's, it's sort of very dynamic. I don't really need to know like how many messages I have in advance. I just feed it new messages. Um, I guess, here would be a good point to talk. Uh, well, I guess another thing I want to mention is that um, in the system, you one thing you kind of want to do with messages is you want to avoid any kind of collision between the messages you're hashing. Uh, this pops up if you have ambiguity about the order of messages you might hash or about their links. So one way to sort of avoid this issue is that before you hash a message, uh, you also include its length. And so then if you look at sort of like all the things that have been hashed in the transcript, you have always, you know, length, some bytes, length, some bytes, etc. And so then it's sort of unambiguous how to parse this in a different way. Whereas if I just have, you know, four bytes, that could be, you know, two chunks of two, four chunks of one, etc. But if it's four as a length and then four bytes, I know that it's that. Or if I have two, two bytes, two, two bytes, then I know it's that. So that's, so you want to have that length information somewhere. And the Merlin slash magic in approach is you, you always just hash that with the message. Another thing that uh, you do is that you also include sort of like a, a label for each uh, challenge. So, well, for each message and challenge. So like I, I whenever I include a message, I also include a label sort of, you can include a label describing what kind of message it is. So that sort of avoids issues where you have a conflation between two things. Uh, it's sort of a minor point though. And also when generating a challenge, it can be useful to, to have an extra message that gets hashed in to distinguish the challenge. Uh, there are a few differences between Meow and Magic Kitten, which are like minor. So I, I think the main difference uh, 
is that in in Merlin you have to commit to the number of challenge bits you're going to extract. So when you create a challenge, you give it a label and you say, I want, you know, 20 bytes, I want 30 bytes, etc. And then you get exactly that amount. And this length matters. So if I ask for 20 bytes at a specific point or ask for 30 bytes, I'm going to get completely different bytes. You know, those 20 bytes are not going to appear in the 30 bytes. With Magic Kitten, the philosophy is, is kind of different relative to that. So the way it works is that with Magic Kitten, when you get a challenge, you don't like tell the number of bits you need and you don't like give it a buffer. The way it works is that when you get a when you create a challenge with a label, you get a, an instance of a random number generator. So just another stateful object. And this random number generator, basically once it's created, it will give you a deterministic stream of bits, which look random. So if you have an RNG and I ask for eight bits, then I ask for another eight bits, well, let's say I ask for like 16 bits in one chunk or ask for 8 bits. Those 8 bits are going to be a prefix of the 16 bits. So basically, once I've asked for a challenge with the label, I have an infinite stream of bits that depends on the transcript so far in the label. But how I use that stream of bits afterwards doesn't change it. And in particular, you don't commit to the length of the challenge you're, you're using uh, beyond the fact that you just put a label indicating you know, which challenge in the protocol it is. And in my opinion, this is much more flexible. Also, uh, in terms of like the concrete implementation in Rust, it, this RNG object implements the, the traits you need for random number generators. So if I have an algorithm which you know samples a particular distribution given an infinite stream of bit, given a stream of bits, I can just pass this RNG object in, which is quite convenient. So you can write code which accepts this is quite common. You can write code which accepts an RNG instance and generates uh, a number sample of the well, not necessarily a number, but just an object for your distribution. For example, you might have a complex algorithm to generate a random point on an elliptic curve or something, and you just take an RNG instance. And so if you want that to be a challenge, well, this would be quite simple with uh, Magikin, because you generate your RNG object, you pass it to whatever function accepts RNGs, because uh, you have a trait to extract it with this. And so it's, it's, in my opinion, much more flexible in those situations because you can you can you, you can generate challenges like that now one other way to do it in many situations you know in advance how many bits you need but sometimes you don't for some algorithms it's useful to be able to do rejection sampling so that's when you 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 do some stuff with the randomness and then it might not succeed so you try again until you get the right sort of object and this is much more convenient if you don't if you know in advance if you don't well, basically it's much more convenient to be okay, I should rephrase this. To be able to do this, it's really kind of necessary to not have to provide how much randomness you need in advance. Because otherwise, one thing you do is you just provide like an upper bound on how much you need. But that's sort of expensive if you're not going to end up using that much. And so with the RNG object approach, you can you can do that much more easily because you don't need to know in advance how much you're going to pull. Another thing is that. Uh, I, since you don't commit to how much sort of bits you're extracting from the stream, it's just this long infinite stream, it avoids like issues where refactoring code to something equivalent changes the behavior. So let's say I'm doing rejection sampling and I have like a buffer. So like I sample, you know, maybe 20 bytes at once for performance because maybe sampling one byte at once is like, you know, slow or something. If I change that to be 40 bytes and the length 
I'm pulling from the stream each time it's committed. Well, then the, the issue with that is that just by changing the size of the buffer, I've changed the result of my code, even though this is sort of like an internal internal aspect of how I've, I've chosen to sample stuff. So that's that's a behavior I find counterintuitive. So, but and so the way Magikin works when you when you sample a challenge is that it generates it basically generates two hundred thirty two bytes uh, of of it's sort of like as if you 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 did you generated a thirty two byte challenge with Merlin, except that it then uses that challenge to initialize a a random number generator, which also uses Meow the underlying strobe library. So that's the detail of how it works. Another slight difference with Merlin, with Magikin, is that uh, I also commit to the length of the labels. Uh, so with Merlin, it's I, I, I believe I've read the code a few times, but I, I, I might be making a mistake here. But basically, it's when you have a message, it's the label as bytes as metadata, the length of the message as metadata, and then the message. Uh, with Magikin, it's the length of the label as metadata, the label, and then the length of the message as metadata, and then the message. And so this this allows labels to be prefixes of each other because it's not ambiguous anymore. Uh, and another slight detail is that I use a variable length encoding for the length. So I, I basically use the encoding where you encode seven bits at a time, and then, then the first, the, the most significant bit is zero if the basically the, the the integer stops there and otherwise it's one and so this means if you have a small length you can encode it with one byte if you have a slightly larger length you use two etc and so that it's you know it's sort of a trade-off between efficiency and like encoding performance because encoding this as a number is like you know it's fast obviously but it's it's and compared to just arithmetic instructions, it's kind of slow because you might have like branch misproductions and stuff. Um, so if the if if basically the cost of like hashing more data is 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 less than the cost of like spending time encoding lengths, it might not be worth it. So that's I'm not even sure if, if it even improves performance, but like aesthetically, it bothered me to have like these huge lengths. Because uh, Merlin uses uh, 32 bits by default, so that's four bytes every time. I didn't like that, especially with with including the length of labels, which are often going to be like you know 20 20 bytes, even if that like maybe you know a few characters. So it's just a short a short message. So you can you always use one byte to encode the length. And I guess I guess I want to talk about something uh, related to these two systems, but I should probably like explain how they work internally a bit using the idea of a, of a sponge. I think I, I could probably do an entire episode on like strobe and stuff, or at least a blog post. But the core construction inside of both of these is is strobe. Although with magic, can you use a, a small, a different permutation instead of Ketchak, you use kitten, which has 10 rounds instead of 24. But And so the, the sponge construction is actually quite simple. It basically uses a permutation and the idea is like, the permutation is, is hard to distinguish from just a random permutation. And, and the permutation takes basically a, a, an array of bytes to another array of bytes. And like the bits don't have to be preserved. Like you can have a different Hamming weight for the bits at the end. So basically each, each, uh, 
area of bytes gets mapped to another area of bytes in sort of a reversible way. And so with a sponge, you basically split it into two sections. You basically have like the writable section, and then you have like the sort of the security section. And so the security section, I guess for concreteness, I'll just use the parameters for 128-bit security that both Merlin and Magic can use is 32 bytes. And so it's you know big enough that there's no collision at 128 bits of security. And so that's sort of like the capacity area. And then above it, you have another uh, 168 bytes, <laughs> which are the writable area. And so that's so that's basically how much you know stuff can I put into the hash function? How many bytes can I write into the into the thing where I have to do permutation? Because the the basic idea is that you 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 put data in some way into the, this top part until you reach the capacity bytes, and then you stop. You run the permutation, then you might continue writing. So the simplest way to, to create a hash function is like you you XOR and bytes into the into the into the writable part into the rate part, then you do the permutation, you XOR more bytes, etc. Then when it comes to time to squeeze data out, uh, you can run the permutation once to sort of ratchet the state, and then you sort of read bytes from the top until you reach the capacity bits. Uh, you run the permutation again, you read some more bytes, so it's quite an elegant construction. And th the basic flow is that is that you absorb by XORing data in, and then you squeeze by first running a permutation if you've XORed data in, and then sort of reading data out, and then permuting it. And then with both of these operations, whenever you sort of reach the end of the rate, and you don't have any bytes left to write or read, you run the permutation again to sort of create some more bytes you can use. So I, the reason I wanted to talk about sponge functions a bit is because I want to talk about uh, safe, which is another way of doing Yachimir. And it's uh, safe stands for sponge API for field elements. And so it defines a, a useful way of doing it, sort of the Yachimir transform. The difference is that it's focused on hash functions or really sponge functions, right? That work with field elements. Uh, and the reason you want this in the context of zero-knowledge proofs is that uh, one thing you might want to do is you want to sort of verify a proof inside of another proof. And zero-knowledge proofs are often much better suited to arithmetic circuits, so doing operations over a field. So you want a hash function, because if you need to verify, you need to like you know compute these hash functions, which are used for the fiat Schmier transform. You'd rather have a hash function which is you know very amenable to being went over a field. And so the sponge API for field elements is sort of a way of, of doing this. So for example, instead of having you know your sponge as bytes, the sponge is composed of field elements instead. And in fact if you if you if you tweak the the, the spec to be to allow ring elements instead of field elements, uh, you can actually use bytes too, because bytes are like former ring under XOR <laughs> and uh, and bitwise and so if you if you allow ring elements then sort of the two cases are sort of coalesce. But otherwise, yeah, I usually consider field elements in, the, in these cases, because most uh, snarks don't work over uh, rings that well. So that that's that. And the, the basic API that you need for the sponge is you need a way to absorb data, and you need a way to squeeze data. And this works the same way as I said before, before except instead of XOR for absorption, you use uh, field addition. But then, you know, it amounts to effectively the same operation, right? In fact, in the case of a, you know, a Boolean ring, it's the same operation. So you can absorb and squeeze, 
And so then the question is, how do you use this in the fiat sugar context? So absorbing and squeezing is good for like, you know, keeping the staple object around so you can sort of absorb all the transcripts so far. One thing you'd want, uh, one thing you need in like sort of the Merlin slash magic in case is like a way to commit to like the lengths for like framing the messages you're doing. And the safe approach is quite interesting. So instead of like including like also the length of stuff you're absorbing and like the length of bits or fields you're filaments you're squeezing out, instead, the idea is that you hash basically a commitment, a description of the pattern of absorbs and squeezes you're going to do. So maybe you have a pattern that says I'm going to absorb one, then absorb another one, and then squeeze two. And so that's an IO pattern. And then you also include some domain separation, whatever context information you want to bind the transcript to. You hash that and you get sort of a tag. And the idea is that you initialize the state of the sponge using this tag. So you essentially write, well, basically in the spec verbatim, it says that you need to initialize the state to all zeros and then write the tag at the start of the state in the, in the right bits. And so doing it this way, you've already committed to the IO pattern. One thing in the spec that I sort of disagree with is that it says that uh, adjacent absorb should be coalesced together. Personally, I, th I, I think that's that's bad. I, I would rather not do that. I think it's better. It's better. It's better. It's, it's nice to be able to distinguish. I absorbed one field element, and then I absorbed another one from I absorbed two field elements. Uh, the spec currently says that you have to coalesce those two things to be the same IO pattern, but you know it's a minor detail. And uh, for what I hear. <laughs> there are some people who actually wanted that behavior too. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's my opinion based on what I find useful, but other people might find other behaviors useful for the things they're trying to do. Uh, and also, so one interesting sort of limitation is that in this approach, you need to have sort of a fixed pattern of all the reads and writes you're going to do through the transcript. And so you need to sort of calculate this in advance. So this can be kind of tricky, you know, with a, a big complicated snark, just calculate, okay, how much data, how, what exactly are the hash operations going to look like throughout the program? You know, I, I'm sort of implementing Starks right now. And so you need to calculate, okay, I'm doing like this, uh, this Merkle tree commitment. How, you know, what's that going to look like? Uh, oh, I need to hash this polynomial, you know, how, how exact, what, what's the exact degree of this thing? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's sort of anti-modular in some sense, but but if you if you if you do it that way, it's sort of sort of nice in that first of all, for recursive composition, you kind of need a handle on this stuff anyways, because for recursive composition, you'd encode all this into a circuit. It, at least if you if you do the circuit approach and not like the RAM machine approach, there you could like use a dynamic bytecode, so it's a bit different. But if you need to encode this in the Frick circuit, you're gonna need to know like the topology anyways, like what what's going into the hash function, what's not. Also, doing it this way, you know, hashing the IO pattern in advance, it means that you're sort of hashing the minimal amount of data because you're not hashing anything, any kind of metadata. All that, all that's done at the start and can be hard coded as like a constant in your circuit. So like I hash my IO pattern in like any context, any of the like domain separation that's, that's static, I get a constant and then sort of like that constant just goes into the circuit. So that's, you know, a nice property. So I think for recursive composition, this idea is better than the dynamic approach. It's like less convenient though. <laughs> so if you don't need recursive compositions, I think the, the the dynamic transcript approach of Merlin or Magic Hidden is better. It's much more, it's like easier to use because uh, you don't need to like calculate the IO pattern in advance. And uh, another suggestion I had for the safe 
stuff is that uh, as written it doesn't really support chaining because you have to like initialize the sponge function using this hash function which is like you could use a sponge function to calculate the hash but usually it's like sort of out of band maybe use like sha2 or like sha3 to like calculate this and then it becomes a constant and having that as constant is quite nice the hash of the io pattern in the dom domain separation and Actually, a slight modification allows you to do chaining, like you can do with Merlin or Magicken. So the modification I propose is that instead of just initializing the state completely to zeros, first of all, you just say, okay, well, I start with a state. I don't know what the state of the sponge is so far. I just know, like, you know, there's a position where I can write to uh, based on what's happened so far, and there's, like, it's initialized to some field elements. And then instead of absorbing the tag that, that comes from hashing the IO pattern in domain, you write you write into the sponge. So you just completely overwrite some few elements. And this is similar to how like keying works in strobe. Uh, so basically writing is sort of better because it avoids any issues where like uh, specific like states above me can cause like the key material to not be absorbed correctly, etc. Uh, and then you basically write and you know if if you run out of space when you're writing your, your tag, well then you just do a permutation. And then you always squeeze. You basically, basically uh, another thing in the in the spec, for say this is really technical. Uh, basically, if you if you squeeze immediately before doing any absorption, you will read the tag, and then zero bytes or zero field elements. Uh, I think I think instead you should basically force an initial squeeze. So like if you if you squeeze initially, you have to run a permutation first. So basically, you'd also Make sure that after, you know, so the way this chaining would work is that you'd accept in a sponge state with a you know, position where the next of the next fruit element you can write to. You write over your tag, possibly running a permutation if you run out of space. And then you say that you have to, before, if, you, if you're going to immediately squeeze, you have to run the permutation. Now, in most cases, you're going to immediately absorb, in which case, as soon as you absorb, you have to run the permutation before squeezing. That's the way it works. And so if you do it this way, what's neat is that after you know running a protocol, you have the sponge function is in a certain state, and you can just pass that state to the next protocol, and it will, will it will work. And so then for the at the very start, you just initialize the sponge to zero and you pass it to the first thing. But you could also one thing you could do is like maybe you have you want to like have a dynamic message that's like that you actually want to like handle in the circuit. Well, one way to do that is like well first you know you handle the message by hashing that. You know, maybe you have a small protocol which just hashes the message and then gives you a sponge state. And then, well, you pass that sponge state to the next thing. And then now everything's bound to the message because this this sponge state gets chained through all the protocols. So that would make it would sort of be the best of both worlds in some sense, because you can do this nice chaining. So you could have this sort of modular composition of stuff, but you'd also have this sort of fixed topology. It, it, the idea is like each sort of subsystem would know its own IR pattern and would have a constant which is already the hash of the IR pattern and maybe like a domain which specifies what subsystem it is and each of these could be changed together chained together so you'd have sort of this much more modular code where only each subcomponent sort of needs to be able to calculate its IO pattern but you don't need to calculate the IO pattern of the thing as a whole because you can just chain multiple subparts together so i think that would be a very cool api to have and I think I'm probably going to play around with Sponge because one thing I do want to implement at some point is like recursive uh, snarking because that's a very cool concept. I should probably talk about recursive proofs. That'd be like a whole good episode topic, wouldn't it?
anyhow, I think I covered uh, most of what I wanted to talk about. Uh, I kind of had a lot of thoughts about Fiatrimer stuff. I should probably write this up too as a blog post. It would make a good blog post because uh, I've I've announced the uh, talked about the Meow Magic and stuff I worked on this week briefly. But there's some interesting details which would be good to uh, to write down. But I was glad to get this stuff off my chest because I had had this sort of like mulling around for for a few days. So uh, hopefully hopefully this explanation of Fiatrimer <laughs> details was interesting and perhaps even understandable. Uh, if not, well, I apologize. <laughs> you can send your complaints, uh, but, uh, in awaiting your, your complaints, uh, I'll just say till the next one. Thanks for listening. Bye.